New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Good morning, everybody. I must say, you just warmed the cockles of my Presbyterian heart with that, uh, with that singing. Well done. We're going to turn to Scripture, and uh, we're going to look, at, first of all, at Genesis 12. Verses 1 to 4. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And then moving on to uh, Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 12. <coughs> By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise." And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Just excuse me while I cough. This is going to be loud. Excuse me a second. I'm not a smoker, but I have a smoker's cough, which is is unfortunate because I have the penalty for the vice without the pleasures thereof. So, <laughs> God so loved the world. Uh, we live in a world birthed in divine love. We saw that yesterday morning. It's a world that divine love has also pursued right from the beginning. In the midst of darkness and despair, right in the midst of decay and devastation, from the very first moment that evil touched our human hearts, and all the way down to this moment as we sit here, all the way through, God has been pursuing His creation, at times bringing the very wicked to justice for sure, but more remarkably and more consistently, God has been seeking to turn evil to good, and God has been showing enormous patience and love toward His creation and blessing it 
in spite of our best efforts to bring it to ruin. Yesterday we saw an especially wonderful picture of this divine determination to bless. We were looking, among other things, yesterday at the story of the great flood. God brings this great flood on creation because it has sunk into the most terrible wickedness. And yet, in Genesis chapter 8, you remember, He promises that He will never again curse the ground because of humans, and He will never again destroy all living creatures, even though human beings are just as wicked after the flood as they were before. God's blessing, we are told, will perpetually rest upon creation until the end of time. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And so it has been. And in Genesis chapter 9, that promise is confirmed with a covenant. This is a, a bit of an archaic word nowadays. We don't really use it in uh, English, really speak outside lawyers' offices and churches. Uh, a covenant is simply really a, a solemn agreement. And God, in Genesis 9, makes such a solemn agreement with regard to creation. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, God says to Noah, and with every living creature on earth. God so loves the world that in Genesis 9, He enters into solemn covenant with all of it, you will notice, not just with the likes of you and me. Sometimes in some of our theology, we go a bit astray here, it seems to me. We seem to think that uh, God is in the business of whisking all of us away somewhere else and leaving the rest of creation to, to go where it's going to go. But you will notice here that God's commitment is to Noah, his descendants, and all living creatures. God so loves the world, not just human beings. Never again, he says to Noah, never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. This is the first covenant mentioned in Scripture. It is incredibly important because it answers a fundamental question raised by the book of Genesis itself. Here's the question. Is God still committed to the entirety of the world He has made, even though it has been compromised by evil? And the biblical answer is an absolutely glorious yes. God is still committed to the entirety of the world that He has made. God is still intent on blessing all of it. And I said yesterday, this is not plan B. This is still plan A. Evil has come in, but God from the beginning created in order to bless, and God is still intent on blessing. And this truth is then mightily affirmed in another close-by Genesis passage, the one we read together just a moment ago, which also contains a divine promise. This time, the promise is made to Abraham, not to Noah, but it has very similar large-scale ramifications. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The blessing of God, once again. In Genesis 1, 
we read first of human beings, that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 9, after the flood, God blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. You see the similarity of those two commandments. And now, in Genesis 12, I will bless you, make your name great. You will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in Genesis 15, which we also read, God makes another solemn covenant to confirm this promise to Abraham. And so, what we find in the book of Genesis is that to the covenant with all living creatures in Genesis 9, God adds in Genesis 12 and 15 a covenant with Abraham that has implications for all human beings. Abraham's family blessed by God so that all the nations will be blessed by God. Harold was talking last evening about the church not being called for itself, you remember. The idea that the blessing of God moves out through the church into the world. And that's true, but it has always been that way with the people of God. It was that way back in Abraham's time. Abraham's family is blessed by God, not for itself only, but so that all the nations will be blessed by God. Abraham is given a land in which this blessing works out. Why is Abraham given a land? Well, it's so that he can work out in this particular place what all human beings are called to do on the, in the whole earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. In other words, the multiplication of Abraham's descendants into a great nation is really a, a microcosm of the larger human reality. So, whereas in Genesis 1, all human beings are the recipients of God's blessing, being fruitful and multiplying through the earth, the Hebrew word for earth there is eretz, in Genesis 12, Abraham receives this blessing, and he inherits a land which in Hebrew is also the word Eretz. You see? Macrocosm and microcosm. And Abraham's descendants are to fill this land as a great nation. So you see what's happening here. One fragment of the human race is taken up in this part of Scripture and this fragment is given a promise of land and nationhood so that all the earth may still receive God's blessing as God originally intended. And so you see what this story is about. Right at the beginning, this is a story about mission. We're all missionaries. When did that begin? Did it begin with Pentecost? No, it began really with Abraham. Abraham is called out for mission. And the people of God, the descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament, and indeed we are also called descendants of Abraham in the New, they and we are called out for mission. It begins in Genesis 12, and the mission is cosmic in its implications. It involves the fulfillment of God's promise to bless His entire creation God so loved the world. God so loves the world. Look at what he's doing in this story, and you will see that this has been going on for a very, very long time. This is a story we realize as we get to Genesis 15. This is a story that is still going somewhere presence of evil in the world notwithstanding, there is hope in this story that God will still fulfill the plans He had in mind for creating the cosmos in the first place. And the promise to Abraham remains the great focal point of this hope 
all the way through the book of Genesis, all the way through the Pentateuch, actually, and we find that this promise survives against all the odds because God is not subject to odds. And so, the promise to Abraham survives somehow the great problem of childlessness. You may have noticed before how prominent that theme is in the book of Genesis. Many of the women in this story do not find it easy to have children. And that's the problem, because you can't have as many descendants as the sand of the sea unless you can start with one. So, the problem of childlessness is a huge obstacle to this promise to Abraham. But the promise survives amazingly, miraculously. The promise to Abraham in this story survives famine. There are many stories about famine in the book of Genesis, and famine threatens the promise because you cannot easily do mission if you are dead. You may have noticed that. It's kind of tricky. But the promise of God, it is the promise of God, and therefore it survives famine in the book of Genesis. The promise survives, in Abraham's case, the danger to Sarah, his wife, from powerful men like the Pharaoh of Egypt. If you've read this story ever, and I hope you will afterwards if you haven't done it already, on two different occasions in the Abraham story, Abraham put Sarah and other people in danger by pretending that Sarah is only his sister and not actually his wife. Their son Isaac later follows his father's bad example. But the promise survives, and most fundamentally, and we talked about this yesterday, most fundamentally, the promise to Abraham survives, the threat posed by the poor moral character of God's people themselves in this story. And we're going to see that theme illustrated big time when we think about Jacob tomorrow morning. So, the promise to Abraham survives, the promise to the whole world survives against all the odds because it is the promise of God. And the covenant associated with this promise is the covenant of God. And God, in biblical perspective, we learned this yesterday, God is utterly determined to see His creation flourish. This lies in the deepest heart of God that the creation He has made should flourish. And so, the promise to Abraham survives all the way to the end of Genesis. It survives all the way into the book of Exodus. When Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt, it is this promise, it is this covenant that God remembers, Exodus chapter 2, and this remembering results eventually in the great escape from Egypt that we know as the Exodus, and the Exodus eventually results in the partial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham because eventually the promised land is occupied and the Israelites settle down to live there. But we read in the book of Exodus that God not only remembers covenant, God also intends covenant. He brings the Israelites out of Egypt. He sets them free. His purpose in setting them free is not to set them loose in the desert. His purpose, you remember, is to take them to Mount Sinai. Why? To make another covenant in Exodus chapter 19. This is a covenant now with the Israelites. It's a covenant with one people group. So, the Noah covenant is about all living creatures. The Abraham covenant is about all nations. The Sinai Covenant is now focused closely on one nation. 
But it's really important to notice that nowhere, even at this point in the story, nowhere do we escape from the idea of the missional character of the people of God. Look at Exodus chapter 19. It's on screen, verses 5 to 6. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, notice that. The whole earth remains God's domain, and the task of the people of God is to be a kingdom of priests. And you know what priests do in the Old Testament. Priests mediate God's blessing to other people. That's what priests do. So, God doesn't say to Israel, I make you now my treasure possession, and that means you can forget about everybody else. Who cares about the Egyptians or the Assyrians? Just get on with your own life because you're the chosen people. That's not what God says. They are a treasured possession. They're a treasured possession in a context where the whole earth belongs to God, and they have a job to do. Their job is to mediate God's blessing, to pass it on to other people. So, the covenant is narrowing down, but it's always narrowing down with a view to the big picture. And that's not even the end of the story. In the, the biblical story that follows later, we find God still working actively in the world to pursue good even in the midst of significant dysfunction and wickedness, even among the people He's called out to be a treasured possession. God's commitment to the world does not waver. And the story that I mentioned yesterday in the first book of Samuel about how Israel eventually came to be ruled by kings is a very striking illustration of this same truth. In 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites are unhappy about the way they're being governed. They ask Samuel for a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So, they're called out to be a special nation, but they've kind of given up on that idea. They now want to be like the other nations. This is seen in, in 1 Samuel 8 as a rejection of God's own kingship. The Lord says, they have rejected me as their king. And Samuel goes on to tell them all the many ways in which this will end up being a disaster. He says, really everything you hold dear about being the people of God will be eroded if you have a king like the other nations, because such a king will centralize all power around himself. He will erode your freedoms and your rights. He will rule like an Egyptian pharaoh. He will govern like a Babylonian monarch. You shouldn't do this. It's not even in your own interest. But the Israelites are adamant on the point. Verse 20 of 1 Samuel 8, no, we want a king. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. You may be aware that the Israelites were called always and only to fight God's battles. Now they want a king so they can fight their own. So, this is an enormous step away from the identity that they have been called to embody. They want really to be done with God's kingship. And the remarkable thing is that God simply says, okay, it's a sinful request, but we're going to go with that idea. God accepts 
their sinful request. He goes along with it. He works with what he finds. They may have rejected him, but he does not reject them. And in fact, quite remarkably, from this point onwards in the biblical story, kingship becomes central to God's own plans for Israel and for the world. Kingship becomes a ground for even more biblical hope. Uh, you may well be aware that Israel's actual kings are not very good on the whole. If you read your Bibles, you won't find many happy stories about kings. doesn't matter. God sticks with the monarchy for a long, long time. And in the midst of that story, He makes a covenant with one of those kings, a very important covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with King David. And as part of the terms of this covenant, He says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here, God makes a covenant with an individual Israelite. And this is a covenant about an everlasting royal house. And to get the point, you've got to read this covenant in the context of the others. So think back. We read David in the context of Sinai, and Sinai in the context of Abraham, and Abraham in the context of Noah, and Noah against the background of the creation story. Think of it like a Russian doll. You know those Russian dolls that each have smaller ones inside? Each covenant lives inside the one before. And now we can fully appreciate the hope for the world articulated in the Noah and Abraham covenants, because covenant has now come to include a son of David, a son of David. So, covenant narrows down as we move through the Old Testament story. It involves all living creatures. It then involves all people groups. It involves just the Israelites. It involves, in the end, one Israelite, David. Covenant narrows down, but always in the context of the big story. God calls one people. God calls ultimately one person to live in right relationship with Him so that the whole earth may be blessed. And David finds his particular place within this great plan. And as I'm sure you're aware, the promise to David becomes then crucially important for what happens later in the biblical story. Kings come and go. Eventually, the monarchy of Israel fails entirely to express the kingdom of God. The monarchy is swept away. Israel goes into exile. The question is, has all hope now evaporated? The monarchy is gone. Does hope remain? And the Bible says, yes, it does. Israel's monarchy may have originated in sin. It may have failed to express the rule of God. The monarchy may have come to an end under the judgment of God. But hope remains because God is God. And so our biblical prophets look ahead to a time when all of our broken relationships will be healed with God and with each other and with the rest of creation. Everything will be healed. Everything will be transformed. God will see to it. God has always been seeing to it. And most centrally, we can see Him seeing to it in 
our Lord Jesus Christ, who makes a new covenant with us all. You see the glory of this enormous story that we're caught up in. In the Old Testament, we find this covenant narrowing down with an eye to the whole world. And when we hit the New Testament, we find it opening up again with an eye to the whole world. So, we get down to one Israelite, David. Who do we meet in the Gospels? We meet one Israelite, a son of David, Jesus Christ, who gathers the lost sheep of Israel to Himself, forms a new people of God, centered on twelve disciples, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. That people group then comes very quickly to include everybody, both Jew and Gentile, all nations. And when you get to Romans 8, the Apostle Paul speaks of all creation groaning in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. And maybe you've asked, why is it waiting? It's waiting because we are called to look after creation, and we are so screwed up we can't. And so you need the redemption of the sons of God before creation can reach the kind of flourishing that God always intended it to have. And so we find Jesus in His love, the very love of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, rescuing not just Israelites and not just Jews and Gentiles, but much, much more. In Jesus Christ, Scripture teaches us God reconciles all of creation to Himself. And so the world that was created by God is saved by God, created by love, saved in love, and nothing is lost except that which refuses love. Nothing is lost except that which refuses God. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. I, I'm blown away by this. This is an enormous story. We narrow it, I'm afraid, too much of the time. We make it small, and we come to think that only human beings are important, or maybe actually only our people group, or in all honesty, maybe only our church. God is saving us, and we're very pleased. And that's true, of course, but try to see the enormity of the story that we're caught up in here. This is a massive story, and it touches on everything in the cosmos. It's a story birthing God's love, permeated by God's love, brought to a wonderful conclusion in God's love. The love of God marks it all, shapes it all, interpenetrates it all, and it's really important that we understand this. It's very important that we get the story right. Why do I say that? I say that because each and every one of us makes sense of our lives in relation to some larger story about the world. It's just the way we are. As human beings, we are wired to inhabit a story. And the only question is, which story is it going to be? Our own personal stories are not sufficient to sustain us. They're not big enough. We don't even understand them very well. Looking backwards, we don't remember much about the events that first shaped us. The memories we have are often really given to us by others in truth. Our personal life stories begin in forgottenness and mystery. We don't know anything about the end of our story, of course. That's completely mysterious. So we begin in mystery. We end in unknownness. And in the middle, frankly, we are usually very muddled. I have a colleague who puts it this way. 
We are inextricably middled in our own story, and therefore we are comprehensively muddled in the midst of our own story. We don't really know who we are just on the basis of our own personal life story. And sooner or later, many of us come to realize this, and people have been realizing this, by the way, for a very long time. Uh, one of the greatest stories ever told in Western literature is Dante Alighieri's work, Renaissance work, The Divine Comedy. Uh, don't be misled, it's not very funny. Uh, <coughs> the Divine Comedy. Uh, it's a medieval story of one man's journey down to the pit of hell, up the great mountain of purgatory, which in Dante's world is positioned round about where Australia is nowadays. Not going to make any comment on that. Uh, down into hell, up the mountain of purgatory, out through all the circles of heaven, until Dante is gifted with a vision of God. It's a physical journey, but it's also a journey that Dante takes into himself, confronting his past, his own capacity for sin, for repentance. And this story begins in a very interesting way. Here's how it begins. Midway in the journey of our life, I walk to find myself in a dark wood, the right road, holy, lost, and gone. This is the original midlife crisis. This is, this is where it begins in Renaissance Italy. Dante finds himself lost in the middle of a story whose end is a mystery. He's middled. He's muddled. We who are wired for story find ourselves eventually, some of us sooner, some of us later, we find ourselves in this position, and the story we know about, we recognize, does not and cannot satisfy our deepest desires and longings. And so we try to make sense of it. We need a bigger story. This, this need has been recognized by, by lots of different people. It's recognized by Alistair McIntyre, a well-known contemporary philosopher. In the middle of his book, After Virtue, he says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? We enter human society, he says, with one or more imputed characters, roles into which we have been drafted, and we have to learn what they are in order to be able to understand how to respond to others, how others respond to us. It is through hearing stories, he says, about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, wolves that suckle twin boys, youngest sons who receive no inheritance but must make their own way in the world. It is through such stories that children learn or mislearn both what a child and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born, and what the ways of the world are. And this is how he ends, and this is the bit I want you to, to get. He says this, deprive children of stories, and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. It's very profound. I can only answer the question, he says, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question, which story am I in? It's a very profound point. Our great human need is to find out which story we're in, what our place in it is. We're all in the middle of one, but, but which one is it? And who is the author of this story? Everything else depends on really knowing the answer to that question. And that's why I say it is really important that we understand the big 
biblical story. Because if we have a story that we're living in that's smaller than that, it will prove to be inadequate. It will prove not to work. And I suggest to you that many of the folks in our modern times, our recent times, who are drifting away from church, it is because the story they have been given of the Christian faith and life is not big enough, actually, to explain themselves to themselves, to incorporate the whole of the world, and to make sense of everything in it. And the true story, capital T, ought to be able to do that. So, this is hugely important. Here is the story that Christian faith claims to be true. This is the story that Christian faith claims to be able to explain all the fragments of truth that appear to stand outside it. This is the story of all stories. What does it tell us? It tells us that the world in which we live is the creation of a personal God who is good, whose most fundamental nature is to love. It tells us that God has bound Himself to this creation by promise and covenant, determined to bless it, determined to save it, determined to turn evil to good. This story tells us of God's long-term plan to do all of that, centered in Jesus Christ. And this story tells us that this plan will succeed, because in this story, good and evil are not finely balanced entities in the cosmos. You know Star Wars, the light side and the dark side of the force, and you never really know who's going to win, really. In fact, that's why they keep having sequels, right? The light side and the dark side, and yeah, who knows? I mean, if, if Luke had just like missed that little channel by like six inches, like who knows, right? The biblical story says, no, 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 no. That's not right. It's not as if the light side and the dark side are equally balanced. In the world of the biblical story, the true state of affairs is this, that God is good and evil is in reality a temporary inconvenience. I know it doesn't feel that way very often when we are the victims of it, but good in this story is vastly more powerful than evil, and the victory of good over evil is guaranteed. It's guaranteed, and that is the, one of the most glorious features of our biblical story. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for all sorts of reasons. It's very important, though, that we know which story we are in, in particular, when we meet things that do not appear to gel with that story. And so, I want to talk for the last few minutes in particular about Abraham in this context. Abraham called to leave his country, called to leave his people and his father's household, called to go to a land that God would show him. He's on the move, and you've got to wonder, do you not, how he felt about that. Uh, some of you may have moved uh, recently or a long time ago. I made a large move a number of years ago to Canada. It's a very stressful thing to do, or it can be, and I have no particular desire uh, ever to do it again. It can be a rather joyless and fearful thing driven by duty more than by delight. It can be very hard on people, particularly spouses and children, following along with a spouse who is moving for a job. And I have met some very resentful people in the course of my life, trailing along in the baggage of those who feel themselves called to, to go and, and do something, even for God. This would have required from Abraham enormous trust. Just imagine enormous trust. 
How was it that he was able to trust? Because he knew which story he was in, and he knew the God who was calling him, and he knew this God was good, and that, I suggest to you, is what enabled him to make that huge move. And then consider Abraham in the promised land, the recipient of this great promise of God. You're going to occupy the land your descendants will be as many as the grains of sand in the seashore. He gets to the promised land, and basically nothing happens. For a long time, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, nothing apparently happens. All these huge sacrifices they've made, and when they get there, we find Abraham waiting there for the, for the fulfillment of this promise, and he's in the promised land, and we go along chapter by chapter. Chapter 13, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, but in fact, Abraham and Sarah have no son. Genesis chapter 14, still no son. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, as we saw earlier, talks to God about the obvious problem. You, O Lord, have given me no children. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, says God. So shall your offspring be. Tremendous stuff. But as chapter 15 ends, guess what? Still no son. Genesis 16, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Thank you very much. We had noticed. So husband and wife, decide to take a shortcut with the help of the concubine Hagar. Ishmael is born, but they still don't have the right son, so now we have a wrong one. And then we come to Genesis 17, I will bless Sarah and give you a son. And Abraham fell face down, and he laughed. Well, you can imagine. You either laugh or you cry, right? Abraham laughed. He's having a hard time believing in all of this. Genesis 17, no son. Genesis 18, no son. Genesis 19, etc. Genesis 20, no son. Now, you may not encounter this kind of difficulty in your own life. Some of you may have. Many of you will not necessarily encounter exactly this kind of thing, but imagine the trust required of Abraham. Great promise, nothing much happening. How do you trust? You've got to know which story you're in. You've got to know who God is in this story. And it gets worse in a way. Genesis 21, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son. Whoa! Genesis 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Well, that's not right. That is not fair. All of that waiting... Now the promise has been fulfilled, chasing these implausible promises all over the ancient Near East, and now this. Surely too much to bear. Surely the last straw. Now, we know, the reader knows, that this is, in fact, a test. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. But interestingly, Abraham does not know it's a test. We know it's a test, but he does not. And you know the story. He gets up early in the morning, saddles the donkey. Uh, why does he get up early in the morning? It's interesting. Some early Jewish commentators suggested it was so that Sarah wouldn't be there. The feeling was that Sarah, you can imagine this, might well try and stop this cavalcade leaving. 
But Abraham gets up, he takes Isaac, off he goes, he looks up and he sees the place, he, Isaac notices there's something strange about this, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb. How does he know that? He knows the story he's in, and he knows that God is good. And I'm sure he does not have a clue about how the goodness of God is going to work out in this scenario. He is hanging at this point in the story only by the single thread of trust in the goodness and love of God in the midst of baffling circumstances. And then you remember what happens. It turns out, of course, that he's not required to give up his son. The point was to discover whether he would, to discover whether Abraham really did love God even more than his beloved son. And this is why, of course, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Abraham is held up as a model of our faith. Uh, we have to be very careful with that word model. My wife said to me just the other day, Ian, you are a model husband. And I thought, well, that's very nice. And then I looked up in the dictionary, model, a small replica of the real thing. <laughs> Abraham is not a small replica of the real thing. When I say he's our model, I mean that in Scripture, when it comes to trusting in God, there is nobody like Abraham. Abraham is the real deal. And he's the real deal because he knew the story he was in. He knew who God is. So here's my closing question. Which story, which story do you find yourself in? How big is it? Are you sure you're in it? And will you hold on to the love of God and to the goodness of God and to the mercy and compassion of God even in the darkest valley when you haven't a clue how life can possibly be explained if God is good? Because these times, if they have not already come, will assuredly come, and we need to know the story that we are in. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.